This program may contain explicit language. Also, we have a newsletter coming out. It's at slate.com slash gist news. Now on with the possibly filthy show. It's Friday, September 20th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It's day five of comedy week, and at the end of a busy week or a busy day, let's do what millions of Americans do. Tune in to late night TV. We have assembled a panel of late night writers to discuss writing topical comedy in the age of Donald Trump. Joining me are Steve Waltine, who writes for Klepper and wrote for Jordan Klepper's earlier show, The Opposition. Allison Leiby, who also wrote at The Opposition and has written for The President Show on Comedy Central. She now writes stand-up bits for the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Also, Brian Tucker of SNL, who is actually, I think, the second longest tenured member of the writing staff. He's been there for about 15 years. Now, you may have noticed the dominance in the panel of one show, The Opposition, very fine Comedy Central offering, which followed the Daily Show, in the place where the Colbert Report used to be. But why have I relied so heavily on the staff of this one show? What do I owe to this one particular show? Well, could it be that I've only ever appeared on one late-night TV show? And look, I brought a clip. Let's roll My that. opponent tonight is sports journalist Mike Pesca. He is author of the new book, Upon Further Review, The Greatest What-Ifs in Sports History. Here's one. What if I had been good at soccer? Would I still be divorced? <laughs> Mike Pesca, everybody. Mike, welcome. Okay. As you can see, I have what's called insider expertise. But not as much as my guests, so let's get after it. Late night comedy, taking the bad news of the day and turning it into big laughs at night. Hilarious for the viewer, kind of traumatizing for the writers, as we'll find out. And by the way, I did record this. This is how podcasting works. I like to like to divulge this, did record this over a week ago. So if we're talking about SNL and you're screaming, why aren't you talking about the latest controversy? It's because I'm not a psychic. All right, got it. Let's dive in. Late night television is bursting at the seams, but it's also changing. So I wanted, as part of Comedy Week, to have a panel of esteemed late night and and veteran late night television writers to talk about how it's changed, how they react to the change, and what they see the role of late night TV is for our culture. We have Brian Tucker, who has written for Saturday Night Live for 15 years. Steve Waltine, who has written for The Opposition with Jordan Klepper, and then they just jettisoned those first few words, and now he writes for Klepper. And Alison Liebley, who also wrote for The Opposition and The President Show, which was, uh, was that the, that was a mostly improv uh, no, I mean, well, yes, Anthony. You tell me. Anthony's impression is yeah. is very, uh, comes very naturally to him, and it's heavily improvised, but at the same time, the show was written. I erased you when I said it was mostly improv. <laughs> yes. Sorry about that. I'm sorry. There were writers. No, yes. um, but, it's, but also, Anthony could have done the whole thing by himself, and it would have been as good, if not maybe better. <laughs> so, Steve, I actually want to start with you, and Allison, you would uh, have something to say about this, too, because when you started Klepper, you guys kind of re-examined, I mean, you took stock of what late night television was, in a way, which is what I want to do with this interview. You had to reinvent the show and you invented it away from what it had been, which was an inheritor of the Colbert Report. And essentially the opposition was uh, a play on that, which was a parody show where he was playing a character. So before you lit upon the current format, what did you guys and the staff and Jordan, what discussions did you have about where late night is and where maybe you need to go to be different? 
I think the sort of like the watchword going into it was authenticity and to sort of strip away the the character thing that Jordan had been hiding behind this character and that people love Jordan when he's in the field talking to people, reacting, using his extensive improv background to just sort of listen and, and play off things. And I think Comedy Central was really open to the idea of it not having to be like a joke every 20 seconds kind of a thing, which I think is is nice. And um, I think it sort of plays into what you've alluded to and in, in the direction that things may be going is um, a little bit less formal, maybe um, something that is a little bit more conversational and um, that, you know, like I said, plays to plays to Klepper's strengths. So I think we were, we wanted to get rid of the desk and get, I mean, it was kind of like undoing a lot of the things that the opposition had, had done. Do you think, I don't know, there's probably a lot of reasons why things work and don't work. Tons of reasons. So Colbert essentially worked as doing a parody of the O'Reilly Report and Jordan worked a little less well, shall we say, as doing a parody of uh, the opposition. But do you think some of it is that the O'Reilly report, while horrible and odious, didn't go to the line of evil and existentially threatening where maybe the later, the latest incarnations of that world do. I think very much so. Yeah. Because I think Colbert found what's likable about that character very easily. That's because right. There's something, yes. there's something very innocent and patriotic about the Stephen Colbert character. You can still like him, even yeah. though he's incredibly misguided. And I think one of the, the struggles on the opposition was to try and figure out how to make Jordan embrace the fact that we're getting to a point where this guy can't hold these views and be likable. And, you know, Jordan's such a nice guy that that was really hard. Like, you know, Jordan's not suited to be someone who you hate. And I, I kept, you know, telling him, and I think he's like, you got to be punchable. You got to yeah. be like Tucker Carlson. You got to yeah. be like, we, we got to not like you, you know, which I think also, also thinks harder when the character has your name. You yes. <laughs> yeah. I, and, and Stephen, I think, always managed to find uh, the, you know, the goofy, likable parts of O'Reilly um, but also, as an actor, and you do a lot of Shakespeare, you play Iago. If you play him well, you have to believe Iago's the hero. Like, that must have been tough for Jordan to do. Either tough. you yeah. don't do it because he's not, and it suffer- and the show suffers, or you do do it, and you become, I don't know, warped, twisted, a monster? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think if that, if that is to exist, you know, like, and I, I am a believer that the opposition shouldn't have been canceled, but, you know, I'm biased. But, like, I think to, to, to continue going down that road, if, if you were to continue going down that road, whether Jordan did it or someone else did it, is, like, now that's the, that's the challenge is, like, if it's – if Stephen was O'Reilly – to Bush, you know, this next thing has to be Alex Jones to Trump, and it's right. vile. It's it's inherently vile. So that's one show, and that's fascinating. Um, but I think it says something about the entire late night scene. In fact, what the reaction is to the current moment, and simply being the gentle or not so gentle pushback to administra- to a normal administration is one thing. To this administration is something else. First of all, Brian, do you write for a Weekend Update? What's the breakdown of labor on SNL and what do you participate in? Weekend Update has its own separate writers. Uh, I will write sometimes uh, the, some of the little characters that come on the show, um, like 
you know, uh, this week we, or this past season, I did a, uh, a bunch with Jane Pirro. I do a bunch with Keenan. <laughs> oh, those Pirro uh, pieces are so they good. They are good. Cecily with was Cecily super good in that. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's the political stuff I will do on update. And then for several years, I was, uh, um, I, I would work on the cold open as co-head writer. Um, this past year, I took a new position as a senior writer um, where I just stepped back and let other people do that. So uh, I was less involved in the politics. And the cold year. open is is prominently a place where they put politics. Usually. So how has it changed with uh, the guy at the top and the thing you're pushing back at? Uh, let me let me just throw this one out there. There was this old Ronald Reagan sketch where the joke was he was incredibly yeah. competent yep. and it works so well great. for a number of reasons. The acting it played with our expectations. Mm-hmm impossible and would be wrong during the Trump administration, I think. <laughs> yeah, you know, we even uh, wrote a sketch uh, that I uh, co-wrote uh, that um, it was kind of like that early on uh, in his, uh, I don't know if he was president yet, but um, it was where, you know, he was blustery and narcissistic and then people left the room and he looked in the mirror and was crying and was like, do people really like me? You know, and uh, when we read it out loud in our Wednesday read-through room, everybody really enjoyed it. But uh, Lorne Michaels' point in that was once you make him that, it's very hard to go back to anything else. Right. So, uh, you know, we didn't go in that direction. And, uh, you know, uh, he's been now he's been president for two years and we're still figuring him out. But my point is, I mean, SNL has been on since Ford was president. So they've done, you know, uh, what's that, eight presidents or so. I do think you've been there 15 years. I do think this is categorically different. Very much. Yeah. And so how does it show up in your writing and your approach? Um... I think uh, two ways. Um, it, it, we we have changed a little bit, and also the audience has changed. You know, when we go uh, for Trump, I think we are we are willing to uh, be a little uh, harsher, a little uh, push, a little harder, maybe. Um, in, for lack of a better word, uh, disrespect the office a little bit more oh, yeah. than we used to. However, I will also say that uh, as this as it's gone on and he's been president longer, the audience has become more polarized. And what we find is, although we're trying to make a show for uh, all of America, uh, what they say, all 50 states, um, that it's very hard to satisfy everybody. Yeah. Um, and also if overnight suck in Wyoming, yeah, you, you right. get by. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you do try to make a show for everyone, and I get that. But at the same time, you can't let that castrate you, right? You no. can't let – and so it, it's – if you're making a show for everybody and everybody is half the country or much more than half that likes Reagan, no problem. Ripe comic material. Same thing with Trump is not true. It's true. You're right. Um, and, you know, we've uh, done our best to, uh, you know, push hard. And the best pieces on SNL are usually pieces with a, with a very strong point of view. Uh, however, um, you know, we have a, a kind of a test of, you know, is this a fair hit? Would people on the other side say, oh, you know what? I don't agree with that, but it, I understand where you're coming from yeah. there. But which and people? less and less, like, that's like true. The reasonable people, people who we imagine or, you know, Janine herself. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, it's hard because, you know, uh, more and more of the country might 
be in that category uh, in the last few years. Uh, Allison, have you liked your current gig where you've retreated to the past by 50 years? Is that nice? How do you tell the difference between 1950 and 2019 anymore? Um, it truly Style, feels the cargo same. Style, cargo shorts. It seems very similar politically in how we deal with people. Um <laughs> It, I don't know. I, I have conflicting views about like leaving late night and leaving kind of like there is something deeply satisfying about writing to what's current and being able to write something, you know, at the opposition at the president show when I worked for Triumph, uh, the insult comic dog Ugh. for the election coverage in 2015 and 2016. Like there is something so satisfying about getting that hit on that person that, you know, deep down is just absolute garbage and trash and <laughs> making a point, you know, making a point that will make people either already vehemently agree with you or like maybe being like hey there's like more to the story like and we'll show you through comedy that said um it was exhausting and uh just morally destroyed me in a lot of ways and you know there's only so much i mean when i was at the opposition we watched so much of kind of like fox and Infowars and janine pirro and these terrible people but and when i was at the president show like we watched so much footage of him and just seeing either of those things, if that's not what you agree with, which, of course, for me, it's not, um, it just takes you – like, it just, like, levels you a little bit where you're like, okay, and what's funny about that? I mean, like, I don't know. Part of me was happy when the opposition got canceled when it did because it was the beginning of talking about the family separation um, yeah. at the border and yeah. looking down the barrel of trying to make comedy about that was stressful. <laughs> Like, how do you even imbue, even from satire, um, you know, something funny and entertaining about what is objectively one of, like, the worst humanitarian crises this country's seen? So so you, you said something interesting. Like, maybe you can make a point that points out to people, you know, some truth. Um, I've talked to Larry Wilmore. He says, you know, I don't know if we could do that. It's not really our point. Uh, our point is to make someone laugh. So do you think... Okay, so the two-part question is, do you think you have done that? And does it really matter? Is it important just that you go in with that intention and you're quite willing to concede maybe you've never changed one mind, but that's okay? Of course. And and the president show and the opposition and SNL are, are probably not going to change anybody's mind politically. Um, at the president show something, I mean, we were kind of like living in a weird like show within a show. It was Trump hosting right. a television show. That's not real. Um, we tried, you know, when um, I think it was the opposition's first week, um, the Las Vegas shootings of a couple years ago. And we were like, how do we talk about you can't have Trump get out there and be like, you know, saying what we think the real Donald Trump says, because that's not comedy or entertaining. <laughs> um, it's just scary. Um, so we turned our whole show into kind of a comment on how the rest of the shows were handling it right. and how solemn Jimmy Fallon will come out and have this and it's this bizarre and it's not his fault because what are you supposed to do but this like weird um, I think it was Dancing with the Stars was the clip we found um, or uh, so you think you could do, I don't know there was some joke they were like came out and it was Tom Bergeron was like let's have a moment of real silence we are with the families <laughs> of the vic victims in Las Vegas there's two seconds of silence blackout and then it's the first few notes of everybody dance now. And there's this wild break dancing scene. And we were like, is this real? And I think finding those things where it's going to make you sweat till you bleed. Great. Yeah, no great. That's exactly what you want to hear and see. And it was just this bizarre. And it's I think for us uh, at, at both of both the opposition and the president show and and other places I've been is finding kind of like. What can we talk about that yeah. might point some like point people towards just a different way of thinking about this nightmare that we're all living in? So you said authenticity, and I hear that a lot. And I usually hear it to 
explain the fact that back when uh, Johnny Carson uh, reigned supreme, he wouldn't he would be very reticent to tell you what his actual political views are. You know, these idiots in Congress, that's an easy joke to go to. Or he, And he would tell it well, but like it was very important that Johnny Carson not really tell America what he thought. And maybe, uh, you know, maybe SNL was countercultural, so it wasn't as true. But certainly the late night hosts, it was part of having a monolithic megaculture and so forth. Now the watchword is authenticity. So here's how I'll get there. Uh, Jimmy Fallon uh, pulled Trump's hair, is widely criticized, and every host except him has sort of uh, gone headfirst into, I'm going to be clearly oppositional to Trump and these times, and that will be a mark of authenticity. So my question is, is it mostly driven by authenticity and and the Instagram, uh, I want to get to know my hosts as more people impetus? Or is it more driven by how could you not be commenting on the current administration? Like it would be it would be almost inauthentic uh, to pretend that this was normal. Do you, do you understand the distinction that I'm trying to make? Is it okay. that it's good that the hosts are letting them letting us know something about themselves, or it would be impossible for the hosts to play it down the line? You couldn't get good comedy out of it. I feel like Stephen Colbert wrestled with that question the first two years of his CBS show, that is where true. Yeah. He, he was, uh, at least from what I read, he was given very specific notes of like, it's not the Colbert report anymore. You know, this again is... Like, it's for everybody. And he, I think he struggled with that. Um, but then you can see he just decided, this is my show, I'm going to be me, and I'm going to say what I really think. Um, and uh, I, I don't know, I feel like people, the audience, uh, what they like about uh, a lot of these shows is, you know, the people at the center of them. And if that if that person feels, again, authentic, genuine, someone you want to hang out with, then, then usually the show is a success. Jimmy Fallon, you know, I, I'm certain he has opinions about things, but he certainly doesn't care about it as strongly as somebody like, you know, Jordan Klepper or, or uh, you know. Um, Samantha B or somebody like that. Well, that's that. what I was going to say. Like he gets hurt by the authenticity measuring stick, but that who he is and the show he's doing does seem to me authentic to who he is. Yeah, right. Authenticity just, is different for every person, right? Right. So when we say authenticity, do we don't really mean authenticity is the thing we want. We mean like a caustic anti-Trump. Well, thing, I don't know. know. I don't know. I think it depends on who's who's saying it and why. You know, yeah. and it, it's become a little bit of a buzzword. That's right. And and uh, I think different people mean different things by it. But I mean, hey, like if there's somebody out there and maybe it's maybe it's Fallon, I don't know, who's like, look, I just don't think super deeply about this stuff. And it's, you know, I'd prefer to play, you know, celebrity games with my friends. And like that, there's certainly a lane for that. I mean, yeah. if that's who you are, right? Like I think most people being authentic right now can't help but see this like enormous existential threat and, you know, and and talk about it because it's dominating the news every day. I think it's also um, what people want out of late night has changed. That was my exact question. Um, and, yes. and in the Johnny Carson era, in the heyday where that was, there were just three late night shows and then like whatever was on cable late at night, like it and wasn't, a, was Ted Koppel, it it wasn't was a competition funny, and you right? weren't watching it the next day. I think, I think like the measuring stick against which late night is evaluated is is so different now and there are so many options in a way where it's like you can have you know your celebrity fun and games lane your like political takedowns on your sharp analysis but then you can also have like 
your further le- you know your character stuff your 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 olivers and you know you have all of these different things and maybe there is no real late night show for everybody i just don't think there is anymore i don't think that we're the same culture and i don't think we're the same media consuming culture that we were even 10 years ago um so then it's hard to be like well should late night do this it's like what is late night anymore right so Ugh. this is this is this <laughs> Sorry. is this is uh this is what that observation makes makes me wonder there is the late night there is the fun and games lane but it's ellen it's somewhere in the afternoon and it seems a little i don't know odd to me but i just do note that there are now i don't know how many late night shows do we count i mean yeah there are too many that's the technical (laughs) there's just too many so many late night shows (laughs) there's really one fallon's doing the fun and games thing so you would think he'd own that it used to be the most popular it's the only one in that category 19 are clamoring for let us have the opinionated pointed take on politics one isn't and he's not doing that well well i I think it's says something i'm not sure what yes i i wonder though i think this is what one of the one of trump's like massive hoodwinks is that he he wants us to think that this is politically pointed and i would argue that like we're not talking about whether we want taxes to be higher or lower right. we're, we're talking about the fact that this man is an absolute clown right right it's not and it's and it's not right. so the, the the thing that i the exercise that I always like to give myself the person I've come up with is Sean Penn yeah. is like if Sean Penn were president because I'm, I'm a liberal person yeah. right I would like to think that I would be perhaps not equally aggrieved and if you happen to love Sean Penn and think he's very grounded take Kanye right like yeah. you, someone who who's like a loose cannon and kind of a nutball and would desecrate the office of the presidency maybe neither of them would do it to the degree that Trump has but I would like to believe that if Sean Penn were president and he was acting the way that Sean Penn tends to act that I would be aggrieved by him even though I might agree with his policy proposals about, you know, immigration or healthcare because he would probably be doing lefty things. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I would still want to point out the outrageous tweets and, you know, all those things about the office. And I think that we sometimes lose track. I mean, there are some voices like, I think, Samantha Bee and Oliver that are really talking like specific political policies. I think the more, like, you know, Colbert and the more, like, networky shows have that duty to kind of take on the clownish elements of Trump without necessarily having to say, like, okay, now we're we're writing a piece about single-payer healthcare. I mean, th- there's, right. there's room for that. Right. But, like, this, I think the culture should be getting together to agree that Trump is absurd on the surface. Right. And Trump does a very good job... And conservative media in general do a very good job of saying this is all about politics. It's because you don't agree with, you know, my proposals on X, Y, and Z. And it's it's really not that, I think. Right. That's uh, saying that this moment is about, quote unquote, politics, uh, our tax rates, is like criticizing the Looney Tunes Warner Brother cartoons when they mocked, you know, Hitler and Mussolini for being about politics. Sorry to compare everyone to Hitler, but it was that level of they weren't getting into the fine details of where the Panzer division should be opposed. It was just like a basic, it was, it was about a basic moral uh, pronouncement and we kind of do want the late night host to embody our basic morality. And that, I think that's the fundamental gaslighting when I yeah. watch Hannity yeah. and Tucker is that they're acting like 
Trump is, uh, you know, if, you know, whenever people, conservative relatives are like, well, we lived through eight years of Obama, so now you know how this feels. <laughs> yeah. No, right. that's not an accurate one-to-one. Like, Bush and Obama may be a more accurate one-to-one of saying, yeah, I didn't like those policies either, but I didn't have to wake up to, you know, 10 outrageous tweets and, you know, like constant needling of my opponents and that kind of stuff. So Sasha Baron Cohen came out with a new show. And in the beginning, I was listening to some wise people like our culture Gabfest, saying, I think the time is over of doing a, a faux news report where you're essentially making fun of the stupidity of the common person and then or the stupidity of, you know, a state legislature that's been done so far. We see conservatives using that against organ uh, protesters. But then as I watch a few of the Sasha Byron Cohen shows, I said to myself, but execution still matters. I don't know if the form is over. What do you what do you think? Because you've all you've worked. I on consulted form. on that show. OK, um, I go. worked on that show a little bit a very long time ago when it was still I mean, the the runway for that show is very, very, very long. Yeah. I, I, th- I mean, I don't know. I think there are a few people that are as talented at that kind of thing as he is. And, you know, I think it still scratches a niche, as Steve says, for a certain kind of entertainment, whether, you know, I think it's all about who you are making the mark of those jokes. I don't think we're done with it, but I think, I mean, it, he he definitely, like, pushed it a little bit further than I think he had on uh, his previous shows and uh, or with previous characters and some of them really hit, and I think, you know, and some of them no one talked about. And Yeah. I think the execution is what makes that work. And, you know, do we need a million of them, like, daily show versions where it's you know, those old, um, you know, Sam B used to do it too a lot, those just tropes of, like, talking to a regular person and making them look like an idiot. It's like, well, we're all living that every day for the rest of our lives now, Correct. so I don't know if I want to watch it. But when you're taking some – when you're punching up – yeah, I want to watch that. <laughs> Do you think that's the most important thing, the punching up thing? Yeah. That's what makes it good execution? I think so. I think when it's somebody who objectively deserves uh, derision. But what um, if it's just a regular person? Like, for instance, throw the Jew down the well, that famous sketch, and then we go to people in the crowd and they're maybe doing Jew horns. These are maybe, maybe it's not punching up. I mean, Sasha Baron Cohen's a lot more, has a lot more power in the world than the people he was mocking. I still think it's hysterical because it's at least showing someone, you know, displaying some anti-Semitism. Morally punch, punching up morally? Morally punching up. Yeah. <laughs> it is perhaps a new phrase that I'll pretend I coined and I'm sure did but not. So then, but okay, why is that different from we just like the victims, to play the Steve Waltine game of take yourself out of it. There's probably some very satisfying uh, right-wing guy goes to a protest and exposes the protesters as not knowing basic stuff about the Constitution. I've seen that. Wouldn't he consider that fair game and punching up? Because uh, these are the liberal probably, elites. And I, and, and I personally don't have a problem with that. If that's something right. that people can watch and point, you know, it's like... You know, authenticity is what we want at the end of the day. And if somebody's presenting themselves as somebody who knows a lot about politics and deeply doesn't, I don't care what side they're on. That's funny. Like, you're an idiot. Yeah, I think the presentation is important. If, if I'm saying, if I'm coming to a public place and saying, I'm here because I X, Y, Z, and then you can undercut that. But I I mean, I'm just very extremely sensitive. I hate roasts. I'm like very, very sensitive towards the, especially like the common person. Like right. for someone who spent a decade in an improv theater, uh, people are surprised to learn that the my idea of a nightmare is someone on stage talking to me as when I'm in, in the role of an audience member. So like when you went to see cats and they're crawling all over <laughs> you beforehand. Yeah. No, I mean, I just, I hate, and I did it to people. You know, I, I always tried to do it in a way that never made anybody look 
dumb unless they were really asking for it, you know. But uh, I always chafe at like, and and I agree that Sasha Baron Cohen does it masterfully, and yeah. and a lot of times with to great effect. But I I really I I'm always very uncomfortable when you know. John Q. Public is made to uh, look silly. Okay, here's my big question. It was once expressed to me that if you look at the television day, we start off in extreme earnestness of the morning shows, and we go into more of the factual uh, content of just your evening newscasts until, or the or the network newscasts at 6.30, into irony. By 11.30, we're in irony mode, and it's an exact pendulum. Has that changed? There's an hour of murder. There is the murder hour. There's like, yes. you've got news, you've got... And then there's an hour of horrifying murder, and then the irony. We need the irony. But do you, think, do you think that that's changed at all? Is that changing from maybe the apotheosis when Letterman had was teaching us all how to be ironic? Are we recalibrating? Is it showing up in the late night shows at all? I think we start the day in irony now. I mean, Twitter is... I know it's not a TV right. show, but it's the first thing I see when I wake up besides New York One. Um, but I mean, I think that we've erased the concept of time when it comes to entertainment. And I think overall, yes, like we start earnest and we end ironic or satiric or whatever we want to call it. But I think we're getting so much of it throughout the day through videos that are getting shared, through people writing jokes on Twitter, through Instagram stuff that there's kind of no longer a separation of when you're seeing what that there used to be. Yeah. I mean, is anybody watching it in the, in the order? I mean, I know that I watch... SNL at 11.30 on Sunday. On Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> and, and more accurately, probably I'm, I'm watching two sketches at right, 11.30 right. and then another sketch at three. And then, you know, based on what's showing up in my feed or people are talking about. So, but yeah, I better, mean, it, it is better at night, isn't it? It's not a great, it's not as good in the afternoon. Probably not. Yeah. Uh, it's like day yeah. drinking. You know, it has its appeal. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, I feel like your your question is from a time when the network's programmed for everybody, and right. now we are empowered to program for ourselves. Well, the person who told me that theory was Harold Ramis, so ah. he's been dead for a while. Yes, yes. That was, but it was probably a decent observation back in 1995 or whenever he told me. It's not a bad piece of advice in terms of, especially since I had a kid, like I find that most most prestige television is very, very disturbing. And so like watching Game of Thrones or The Handmaid's Tale before <laughs> two bed. two in the afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was like, yeah. you do want to end, you, it's nice to end your day on Colbert right. if, you can, if you can do it because it's like, it's a little bit less, uh, I mean, these show the best television is the most dark and depressing. Can you actually literally see the Battle of Winterfell better at two in the afternoon? <laughs> Does it show up on your screen in a discernible way? Probably not. <laughs> I can't watch anything in the afternoon because I have big windows that. All reflect. right, Steve, stop bragging. <laughs> <laughs> Biggest windows in town. Steve Waltine <laughs> and his window privilege. All right, thank you guys, Allison Liebley, Steve Waltine, and Brian Tucker. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produced The Gist, and he once had Harold Ramis tell him something really cool and insightful, but he is not so crass as to traffic in it for social cachet. A special thanks to all the producers and Slate staff who helped plan, promote, strategize, and indemnify us of the legal repercussions of Comedy Week. They were, uh, and I'll just be describing the visual that goes along with our credit sequence. Here we go. TJ Raphael. We follow her on a dolly shot, and we realize she's roller skating the wrong way at a crowded rink. Katie Rayford. She's waving playfully 
And then we realize it's actually frantically as her hot air balloon is badly knocked off course. Pierre bien He's frantically digging a hole, looks up at the camera, gives a wink. We pull back to realize that it's a grave. Senior managing producer of Slate Podcast, June Thomas. She mimes walking against the wind. Asha Saluja. She laughs hilariously at June walking against the wind until an actual gust of wind knocks her ass over tea kettle. Faith Smith. She is sheepishly holding that very same tea kettle. Brit Pulley. She pours a cup of tea from the kettle, takes a gulp, and executes a perfect spit take onto editorial director of Slate Podcasts, Gabe Roth, stares sternly from behind the desk as the spit from the tea drips down his face. He refuses to wipe any of it. The gist, specializing in always in theater of the mind. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.